autonomy. Autonomy would be described or defined as the state of self-governing. In other words, I make my own decisions. I decide what I'm gonna do, what I'm not gonna do. And it's a little bit of a sensitive topic these days during these COVID-19s where we think I'm gonna walk into any store that I want. I wanna eat in whatever restaurant I want, that kind of stuff. And so, so we feel the pressure of, to some degree, our autonomy being taken from us during this time. And so there's a reaction to it. And the reaction is actually natural because one of the very first words that God spoke to mankind as he created them was, I give you dominion. So in other words, our desire for autonomy, our desire to actually have control over our own lives is not just simply a fleshly desire. It might be be translated fleshly at times, but ultimately it's a God-given authority. He says, I want you to have dominion. I'm giving that to you. So that's not a question in my mind. The question is, for today anyhow, is what are we gonna do with the autonomy God gives gives us? So so he in his sovereign creation has given you freedom. He's given you freedom in your own life. He's given you freedom to make a decision. But then with that freedom, what's the decision that you're gonna make beyond that? That's why I wanna challenge you with that today. In uh, 1904, 116 years ago, there was a young man graduated from high school. His name was William Borden. Uh, William Borden was actually heir to a, to a fortune. He was actually heir to a company called the Borden Food Company. I think it was a different, but they were the largest at that point, 116 years ago, they were the largest distributor of dairy products, pasta, other food products that were in the United States. The company's been kind of divested and broken apart, and probably you would mess, best remember the the Borden cow, because it's on the Elmer's glue bottle still. <laughs> so that's pretty much where it remains. But 116 years ago, 1904, man, it was significant. It was, it was one of the biggest companies, almost a monopoly in that area in the United States of America, in that industry. So William graduates from high school. His parents have like significant wealth. They have significant freedom. So as a graduation gift for William, they give him a, a trip around the world. 1904. There's no airplanes. I know some of you just graduated from high school and college. You're kind of nudging like, man, you missed the boat on that one. I mean, no pun intended, but I would have taken a trip around the world. So William you know, sets off on this trip around the world in this gap year between high school and college. He's in various places of the world. And in the midst of that, his heart is broken over what he sees around the world. People in need, people living out of the gospel. And he writes back home to his parents. And I said, I feel like God's calling me to something different in the family business. And meanwhile, in his trip, he, he makes a commitment. He writes two words in his Bible, no reserves. Like, I'm not holding anything back. I'm gonna give God whatever he wants. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pursue the Lord. I, I, I will do whatever he asks me to do. His parents kind of pack it, as you can possibly imagine. Get this boy back home, get him back here. Just, as, maybe we'll, we'll get this out of him. So he comes back home, enrolls at Yale University. He's there in the business program. And everything seems to be somewhat quiet. And, uh, but then his senior year at Yale University, he begins to get all these job offers. As you can imagine, he's well-connected, he's well-educated, smart young man, has everything going for him. All these opportunities begin coming his way. And so he feels the pressure in that moment of what am I gonna do and what am I gonna give my life to? And he writes two more words in his Bible and it's that no retreats. I'm not turning back. Like I've given, I've given God my life. And even though I have the opportunity of doing all these things, I give, I give nothing back. I'm fully giving myself to the Lord. I'm not holding anything back. 
He graduates from, from Yale University, heads to Princeton for his theological training there at Princeton, and he's prepared to be launched into the world and do, as a missionary. Graduates when he's about 24 years of age, age, launches to the Middle East to learn Arabic so he can be a missionary to the Muslim people. And at age, tw age, 20, age 25, he contracts spinal meningitis and within a two-week period of time, dies. And because he's so well-known, and because his sacrifice is so well-known, like, to some degree, the world mourns, and word gets back to the United States about him, him, his loss, and so forth, and his personal longings get shipped back to his parents, and they recognize that of those words that he wrote in his Bible, he added two more words. So there's no reserves, no retreats, and one of the final things that he wrote in that time when he knew he was going to die, no regrets. And his death, just kind of a little bit of a side story, his death and his commitment in that way launched a missionary movement that still continues even to this day where people were inspired by his sacrifice and thousands of people were launched into the mission field as a result of what he did. But here's a guy, come on, think about this, 18 years old, Borden heir. When it comes to the possibility of autonomy, meaning the way that we look at oftentimes autonomy of, I can do what I want, I have all the money to do what I want, I, there's no restrictions on me, like I'm just, I'm king of my own world. And it was right in that place that he surrendered it all to the Lord Jesus Christ and lived with no regrets. Come on. How many of you want to live with no regrets? How many of you just want to leave it all on the table? How much of you want to leave it all on the, on the floor? Just simply say, God, whatever you have for me, I just want you, I want, to, I want to give it all today. I know I've been following what's happening here at Lifeway Church, and I know that you were in a series on the work of the Holy Spirit. And coming out of that, then we're in the Spirit Life series, which is, okay, we've learned about the Holy Spirit and all that He does. How do we apply that in a very practical way? And so one of the things I want to share with you today is how do we do this in a world in which Culture is pushing us in a certain direction, but we want to live differently. We want to, we want to live in a way that shares the gospel, that, that demonstrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reality is, and I've titled this message, uh, Live Like No One Else, because if you want to live like no one else, then you need to live like no one else. It's kind of a you know, no-brainer to some degree. But what we're going to do today is I'm going to look at the life of one single person. And not only at the life of one single person, but I'm going to look at the life of one decision that this one person met in, made in Scripture and how that applies to our life today and how that will leave us and lead us into a life with absolutely no regrets. That person is Daniel. And we think about Daniel. I don't know what you think when you hear the name Daniel. If you know, grew up in church and heard all the stories about the fiery furnace and the lion's den, the handwriting on the wall, all that comes from the book of Daniel. And we won't even be getting into all that today. But man, his name is synonymous with Character, integrity, unwavering commitment in the midst of all kinds of, of oppression and depression and, and everything going against him, he's absolutely just unwavering in that. Let me read the first seven verses of the book of Daniel chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. it means he took over. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinkar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, 
endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. Like Daniel fit into that category. That describes who he was. And to teach them the literature of the language of the Chaldeans, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king and among whom were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. Azariah, he called Abednego. I don't have too much time to get into this, but just to understand a little bit of the culture that these guys were actually placed into. Babylon in this season was at the height of their military power, of the economy power, that they were the world leaders of the day. Babylon, we think of idolatry, of worship and so forth. That's a part of what they were doing. But I don't think we recognize, I don't know what you think about when you think about idolatry. Sometimes you have this image that comes out of maybe India or someplace like that where you have these idols that are set. People just simply go and they bow down and maybe leave some food or something like that. That's not what it was. It was that, but it was just more than that. So there was actual idolatry, but the gods that the Babylonian, Babylonians worshiped, which there were many, also required certain activities. And so let me just kind of mention three of those. There was one named Baal, which means like, just remember, farmers go out to Baal hay. No, I hear you, Baal hay, but you know, it's just, hang on, just. So Baal, and so Baal was like this prosperity god. And so they would place these little idols all over the place and they would offer food and bow down and worship. And it was, it's kind of like when you walk into a Chinese restaurant, there's a little Buddha sitting there. It was a little bit like that where, where you just kind of offer these things, but it was a prosperity God. That was one of the gods that they worship. But that would all the way, go all the way through even the child sacrifice, the worship of Baal. Asherah, you hear reading the Old Testament about Asherah poles, and they would set up these poles and, and that would be a place, like an actual location where uh, Asherah was the God of physical pleasure. So as you can imagine, drunkenness and orgies and all that kind of stuff that was happening around these poles. And so their idol worship released some sort of behavior that was going on in the culture there as well. And ultimately there was Molech and, and he, was, he was a demanding God. He was a God of legacy, that you would have a legacy that would go beyond yourself and your wealth would be passed down from generation to generation. And oftentimes what Moloch would do is he would require actual human sacrifice. They would, he would require the sacrifice of one of your children. And that's just simply a, a human sacrifice. That's just simply a little bit of a picture, not just of three gods, but in Babylon, there were multiple gods and each of those kind of released the level of behavior. Uh, Babylon was so incredibly evil that they became synonymous with evil and ungodliness throughout all of scripture, eating, even reading into the book of, book of Revelation and all that it meant to be opposed to God was summed up in the word Babylon. Then you have this guy named Daniel. Absolute integrity. You read, it, read the description that he fit into of what they looked for. He was a person of royal blood. He would have been well-educated. Even they said of him, uh, he was without blemish. Like, oh my goodness, what did that mean in that day, of course? And they took him. And so think about what Daniel would have experienced as Babylon took over the nation or took Judah captive and Jerusalem. 
So he was of the royal family. And you know how that goes when it comes to the royal family. Most likely his entire family would have been murdered, possibly right in front of him. Maybe he had sisters that in that captivity and a takeover that maybe they were raped and murdered by these, these warriors that had no restrictions whatsoever. His parents were killed. He was taken away from his heritage. He was taken away from his future. He was taken away, which may have included being king of Judah. He was taken away from all of that. He would have been castrated. Just let that sink in there for a moment because you know, taking away his legacy, taking away his future, taking away you know, the possibility of marriage and kids and so forth, and all of that was taken away from him. And if that's just not enough, like Daniel would have had every opportunity to be angry. He would have had every opportunity to be angry at God, like, God, I will forsake you because you have obviously forsaken me. And we know from what Daniel has written, actually in the book of Daniel, that he would have copies of the scriptures and he would, have, he would have been reading them and possibly he got his hands on 2 Chronicles 20. And if I was Daniel, I, 2 Chronicles 20 would have made me very angry, almost between, beyond anything that I would have had else other than that. Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Hezekiah, who was king at that point, he welcomed this Babylonian envoy into the city. And in his, in his pride and in his arrogance, because he just wanted to show off all the stuff that he had. And so he gives this, them this grand tour of, hey, here's where this, this, the storehouse of gold is. And here's where the storehouse of silver is. And here's where these things are. And the Babylonians were taking notes. And they were going through from room to room saying, hey, remember, this is where they keep the gold. Here's the combination to the safe. We're going to be back for all of this. And that's what they were doing. And so after Hezekiah made this really absurd move, a prophet comes to him and just simply says, what have you done? Like you've exposed ourselves, you've exposed everything that we have to the Babylonians and now they're gonna come back and they're gonna plunder the land, they're gonna take Jerusalem captive. And Hezekiah comforts himself by this. That's okay because it won't happen in our generation. Holy smokes, man. So here's Daniel a couple generations later facing the result of the neglect of Hezekiah. But I don't know about you, that'd give me every reason to live with anger, resentment about previous generations, resentment towards God for what had happened and all that. I mean, all that would just kind of end there. But Daniel did absolutely none of that. So the question I would have would be, how did Daniel actually live in this culture? Like, how did he live with such integrity and honesty and just with the, with the nature and, and God just flowing through him, the favor of God on him. You read through the book of Daniel and you see the habits that he had. You had like the Bible reading, uh, Daniel 9, he, he, would, he would search the scriptures. He obviously had a habit of prayer because it actually got him thrown in the lion's den. He, he uh, wouldn't compromise in his behavior. I mean, were those the things that actually gave him that kind of confidence and that kind of... Uh, favor in the people? Actually, I don't think so. I think actually those things are a result of a deeper decision. I think those things are a result of something that went on in his heart that's actually recorded in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, that I want to show you, which simply says this, but Daniel resolved. That's it. And what I want to show you here, the reason why there's three different translations there on the screen is sometimes when you're reading scripture and you notice that there's different, significantly different ways that people translate. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself, but Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel made up his mind. 
And so what the translators are struggling with there is there's one word in the Hebrew that's right here in this verse that's actually made up of, it's a compound word of three specific words. And so they're trying to translate it in a way, and it's difficult sometimes to make that translate. Most of the time it works very well, but sometimes there's a bit of a challenge. And so that word, that's a compound word in the original language is made up of three. I wanna show you what those three are. The first word is the word to set. And it's the idea of setting something in concrete or setting something in stone. In other words, this has been set, it's not gonna move. I'm not gonna make any adjustments. Uh, I'm not setting this, like I'm not keeping my options open. Like it's absolutely set in concrete. The second word is the word yoke. And it's just the, the word that you would have, you know, of you know, the Amish farmers that are in the area that yoke their horses together. It's that, I mean, it's an actual apparatus that a, an oxen would put its head through to be yoked with something, to be under the management and control of whoever is leading it. You know, for those of you that know me, you know that I grew up on a farm and, and uh, most of my agricultural experience has to do with livestock, uh, at cows primarily, beef cows and dairy cows. And, uh, but we did have a few horses around and I and horses did not get along real well. I mean, I, I'm, so I apologize to the horse people in the room because I know that you love them and they are beautiful animals and when you can get them to cooperate, it's really pretty cool. Our horses didn't always wanna cooperate with us and, and one of the things that horses would do that would just make me mad, like I was telling this in the first service, still felt a residual level of anger coming up, even as I told the story about what was happening. But horses had this habit, of course, when you're gonna yoke, the idea of yoking a horse is actually putting a bridle on them and a bit in the mouth. And so once they're there, then you have a level of control over the horse that you don't have before that occurs. And so what horses would do, at least the ones that I would work with sometimes, is as you're trying to reach, like I'm not the shortest person in the world, but you're trying to put this bridle on and the, and the bit in the mouth, and then you need to get the rest of the bridle up over the ears of the horse. And so what a horse would do is they would just take their neck and they would just go like this, as if to say, you can't reach that, can't touch this. Like you can't do this. That's what it would do, it'd make me so mad. And you needed to find a way. So at least in this curve, I'm getting some agreement. So apparently some of you work with horses that do exactly the same thing. So it's not just me as a horse handler. And that's the idea. Like when you, when you read through the Old Testament specifically and God says, you are a stiff necked people. That's actually what he's talking about. He's talking about, like he's talking about oxen, not horses, but they would have used oxen and oxen would do kind of the same thing. Like to, for an ox to be yoked, they have to have, they have to kind of almost like willingly surrender themselves to the yoke. They need to, there's a posture of humility that actually happens where the head either remains down or comes down so they can be yoked on. And so when God says you're a stiff-necked people, it's almost like he's telling his people like, you're just not, you are just not willing to yield yourself to my control. That's the idea of being yoked. So, Two words so far that he set, like he decided it's set in stone, it's set in concrete, he set and that he's gonna be yoked. And then finally, it's the heart. So the final part of that compound word is the word heart. And our, our idea of heart is different from the Hebrew idea of, of heart. Like we think, like if someone tells you to follow your heart, which is enormously bad advice, by the way, but if someone just says, hey, just follow your heart, in our culture, pretty much it means like, hey, just do what you feel like doing. Like just, if you feel that's the way to go, just go that way. When the Old Testament speaks about heart, it's not what it's talking about. Uh, a good way to describe the Old Testament understanding of heart is it's command central. Like it's all the data, it's the logic, it's, the, it's what advice that comes from parents and friends and godly leaders. It's uh, what you feel like God's doing, it's mind, will, and emotion. Like all of that comes together and it makes up what the, Bible, what the Old Testament would call your heart. And you act out of that. So these three words in the Hebrew, 
is it set, he said in his mind that his heart would be yoked to God. Like those three things. I decided, I pre here's what Here's what Daniel did. He predecided. So too often what happens to believers is you hear a message from Jimmy and Vern and others that are here. Like, man, you don't yield. Don't yield to the temptations that are out there. And you think, okay, I'm gonna wait till Tuesday. And if that temptation comes up, I'm, I'm like we wait for the moment to yield. And that's not what Daniel did. He predecided. He predecided. Like the decision is already made. So in this case in here, in D- Daniel chapter one, verse eight, where all this great rich food was offered him and why, no, I'm not gonna, like the decision wasn't made in that moment that he wouldn't defile himself with the king's food, which is maybe sacrifice to idols. He had predecided, nope, man, I belong to the Lord. It's set in stone. And I will not yield to anything different than that. You know, as a culture, we highly value our options. If you're graduating from high school, graduating college, or you're in some sort of transitional season of life, one of the things that's oftentimes said, like, keep your options open, man. Keep it all on the table, like, don't decide. Like, keep all the doors, like, keep your options open. Which, from a worldly perspective, may work, okay. But then we take some of that and we translate that to the Christian life. And frankly, too many Christians live in a way where God's will and his directive for you is one of his, is one, just one of the options. Like I'll, I'll, I'll listen to what the world's saying about financial advice. I'll maybe consider some of the biblical principles and, and then I'll just make my decision. I'm just gonna go the best way. And so some days we, desert, we, we decide for God and some days we don't. And listen, there's something about you just need to cancel all other options. In our culture, we have what's called FOMO, fear of missing out. It's actually a social disorder, if you can believe that, where people are afraid if they commit to one party on Friday night, they may miss out on a better party. And so they wait till that last moment, keeping all of their options open before they decide. There's actually a, a book written called The Paradox of Choice that it's a psychological evaluation in which they say that uh, you, know, you would think that autonomy and freedom and having all these choices would actually make our culture happier. It's actually made our culture more anxious. It's actually increased anxiety because we never know if we're making the quite the right choice. And so we think that autonomy is your right to make every decision that you wanna make just based upon what you want when actually the best use of your autonomy and the best use of your freedom is actually to do what Daniel did and submit it to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a little bit of a story of my own experience with this. And in a season of life, going back almost 30 years ago where I was rapidly growing in the Lord and God was just doing good and amazing things and, and really in a, in a place of absolute peace. Like there I wasn't any kind of turmoil in my life or seeing any kind of changes coming or anything like that. I was... A farmer, as I mentioned to you, which my, I never had any plans of being a pastor. That was not something that was on my radar, something that I wanted to do. I loved farming, loved being outside, loved working with livestock, loved growing crops. That was just all that I wanted to do. And so in that place, I was, remember it was an April day and I was getting some equipment ready to get out and get into fields and start working and all that kind of stuff, listening to WDAC on the radio. And there was a preacher that was preaching that day. His name was Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley still preaches, it's Andy Stanley's dad. This guy's well into his 80s and is still consistently preaching the word of God. I mean, what an amazing example. But that day he had a message that just simply said, hey, I'm gonna encourage you. I'm gonna actually offer to you to submit your entire life to the Lord. Just give him everything, like, like fully surrender to the Lord and let him do whatever he wants to do with your life. Now, it was about a 25 minute message and the way I see it, which I'm not sure is accurate, it, I remember that, 
Andy or Charles Stanley would have taken about 10 minutes to kind of give that challenge. Then he took the remaining 15 minutes to tell you why you shouldn't do it. So it was, hey, I'm gonna encourage you to surrender your life completely before the Lord, but I'm just telling you up front, you never know what God's gonna do. Like, you know, you could end up in a mission field someplace, you could be someplace far away. Like, that's how I remember it, probably not accurate. But I just remember it that way, uh, that he had, like it was mostly warning. And so myself, in that time listening to this message, I never stopped working, you know, I'm, you know I'm, just, I'm, I'm just, it's kind of residual hearing or background hearing. I just remember making a decision and saying, yep, that's exactly what I'm gonna do. Angels didn't sing, there was no anointing, no goosebumps, didn't feel a thing, just a decision. Went on with life, God brought some changes into our life and Stephanie and I were active in a local church, Stephanie's Bible quiz coaching, you know, we were serving as home group leaders, I mean, just whatever, I mean, we'll just do, just tell us what we need to be done, that's what needs to get done, we'll just do it. Still just very content with life that we had and uh, one day, I was in the, we were in the Brethren in Christ Church, which means that we had bishop overseers. And so a bishop shows up at the house one day and he simply says, uh, we feel like you need to consider a call to ministry. And it was a left field blindside. And I said, man, I think, I didn't say, like in my head I said. You know, outside it was like, oh, okay. Inside I'm like, man, you got the wrong address. I don't know, I don't know what you've heard. I don't know what anybody told you. And I could go into some circumstantial situations, like it was bad timing all the way around. It was just multiple reasons why the answer is absolutely no. And I don't, know what you're, I don't know what you're doing here. God wouldn't take no for an answer. And part of it was, is that God's, part of God's response to me was like, this is not your decision. You've already made a decision. Your decision is that you would do whatever I ask you to do. And so your decision is no longer yes or no, your decision is, is this what I'm asking you to do? Like you need to ask a different question because the decision, I pre-decided. And there's been several opportunities, several times through life where God has just simply said, listen, I already told you, like you said that you would do whatever I ask you to do. I pre-decided, like God's taken me back to that moment over and over and over again when I wanted to waver and go a different direction. Friends, it's time for you to end your debate with God. God's not just one voice in the, in, the, in the setting of many voices and you get to decide and remain your, in your own place of autonomy. I'll decide what I wanna do. Like I'm not king of this. And many Christians live their life. It, it's, it's like, this is, a, this is a good book of advice. That's cool, God. I appreciate the fact that you gave us advice. I appreciate the fact that you gave us some things that we need to think through as we make decisions. It's not what it is. This is the absolute word of God. God is living and active, and he is not your servant, but you are his. And if we're, gonna, if we're gonna say that he's my Lord and Savior, should there not be some reality to the words, to the words that are actually there? In closing here, let me just take a look at some of these things that, that Daniel gave us, like we see as a result of some of the things in Daniel's life. First of all, we can see the respectful resolve that actually gave him favor. Verse nine, like he had favor in the world around him. Like there was, there was just so much that he brought in, in overseeing um, and the opportunities that he had to oversee right there in the nation of Babylon because he yielded himself to the Lord, which brought the favor of the Lord on him, which was then seen in the world, even in the pagan world around him. And the opposite of that is religious resolve, produces self-righteousness. Like the Bible reading and the, the prayer times and the worship, like all that stuff is good. But if we don't settle this, 
this interior question. Like if we don't go deeper than that and we just remain on the outside and say, hey, I'll read my Bible for 10 minutes today. I'll pray for a handful of things. And we don't go deeper. It's just simply a religion that's there. And ultimately it can be dangerous to us because it can lull us to sleep when God says, listen, I don't want your activity. I want your heart. Let's start there. Let's go to the heart issues. Like does my heart belong to God? And once my heart belongs to God, then let's add these things that actually support that and do that. One of the things later on in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, if you read through the book of Daniel, which if you don't know the book, I'd encourage you, it's 12 chapters, even this week sometime, read that. But towards the end, God begins to give him revelation that we still have yet to see the fulfillment even in our day today. But right in the midst of that and all these things that are happening that are futuristic, uh, it says there in, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, but those who know God, those who know God, meaning not just I know about God, it's an experiential, like I've walked with God. I know him, he knows me. Those that know God stand firm and take action. Holy smokes, friends, I'll tell you what, we need some people in our culture that can stand firm and take action. That's what we need, Matt, I'll tell you what we need that. And we do that, we can be that kind of people as we know God, like he has our heart, we're fully submitted and surrendered to him. There's a, there's a um, relational resolve that results in influence in the world around us. First Peter 3.15, I'm very interested, it's interesting to me that this is actually there where it says, but set uh, Lord Jesus Christ, set him apart in your hearts as Lord. And it's interesting to me, the very next line says, but be prepared to share what's going on around, like share, share your hope with the people around you. And it's interesting to me how that verse actually connects like setting, a heart, setting apart in your heart, Jesus Christ as Lord, with the influence that we have around us. Of the five kings that Daniel served, two of them make public confessions of Jesus Christ. Two of them did. Even one said, all the nations are gonna worship the God of Daniel because that is the one true God. Just think of the, the influence they had as a result of that. And this final one I wanna to mention to you is relinquished resolve. And let me just simply apologize for that word because you get on an R role, it's kind of a preacher thing that you get into where you think everything needs to kind of have a little bit of connection there. So yes, I did actually look up online to find a synonym that I wanted to use that started with R. So it may not be the best word, but it begins with the letter R. It's just... Yeah, you know, sorry, need to apologize. But that kind of, when we yield ourselves to, to the authority of God, it actually releases authority in us. And the scripture reference that I have there, Luke chapter seven, verses one to 10, is the centurion who Jesus said, he's only one of two people that Jesus ever said, this guy has got great faith. And so in that story, as you can read it a little bit later, the centurion says, all you gotta do, Jesus, is say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority. Like I know how this authority structure works. And when I live under authority, it releases authority in me that will not be released even if, if I remain the person in charge. But friends, if we yield ourselves and we truly surrender and submit ourselves to the Lord, you will see that it will release authority inside, even in your own life, to see some pretty amazing things happen in your life. It's time to end our debate with God today. I'm not asking you to wait till Tuesday and decide to do the right thing. I'm not asking you to wait till Wednesday or Thursday and in that moment decide. I'm asking right here in a very safe environment at home for those of you that are watching online, wherever you are in a very God-centered environment to say, you know what, God? I don't know what my future holds, 
but I'm yielding my will right now to you. My heart, I have set in, I set in me that my heart will be yoked to you. You will lead me 100% of the way. You know, we had a great uh, worship time earlier, didn't we? Well, it's great to be in this environment and, and have the team lead us. And, you know, one of the things that we pray, just all the skill that goes into actually doing that, where, where people learn the skill of playing a musical instrument and singing and then working together as a team and then making it look like, hey, that's not a big deal at all, because it actually is a big deal. You know, it's skill when they can do it in a way that doesn't look skillful. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, of course, there's a the technology that all goes into that. And, and then we spend 20 to 30 minutes and we worship the Lord and we just sense his presence. And that's dynamic. And that's actually, it's very significant. God inhabits the praises of his people. But come on, isn't that just way too easy? I mean, really, 30 minutes of your day singing a song? Is that really what God's looking for? Well, no, he is. But isn't he looking for more than that? In Romans chapter one, verse one, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul writes, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and as you study scripture, especially when you read Paul's writings, you always look, when you see the word therefore, you always ask yourself the question, what's the therefore, therefore? And the reason for that is, Paul's a lawyer, that's what he does, so he argues, he, makes, he builds a case, and so he'll build a case, and he'll say, therefore, and then we go to this thing, build a case there. So when he says, therefore, in 12.1, he's referring back to everything that was written in the first 11 chapters. I mean, all the salvation by faith and what God did in Abraham's life and all that he's being offered. We have all false sin and fall short of the glory of God. God richly supplied and all that. He loved us as we were yet sinners. Romans 8, I mean, good grief. All that's there when he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. If I was doing a translation of this first, I would have used a different word. I said, present yourselves because it's more than just your physical body. It's not just talking about martyrdom. It's talking about offering all that you are, your talents, your gifts, your future, everything that's on the table. Offer everything, every, off the body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Like you wanna worship the Lord? I mean, it's one thing to come in for 30 minutes and worship the Lord with song, which is a fantastic thing. But man, it's something else as a spiritual act of worship, just simply surrendering your life to the Lord. So God, everything I have, everything, my past, my present, my future, my resources, my skills, my abilities, everything that I wanted, my dreams, all of it's yours. Man, that's, a, that's an act of worship. That's an act of worship. I invite you to stand. There's two invitations of the day. <clears throat> and the first one for those in the room, as well as those watching online, I'm just gonna share these with you and then Jimmy's gonna lead you through that. The first one is to give your life to the Lord. And I'll tell you what, man, there is so much confidence that can, can rise up inside of us when I'm not in charge of my own life. And I realize that there's so much that, of us that fights against that because we think that we're born for autonomy. We're, we're born for like, I wanna be in charge of my own life. But man, all that does is put all kinds of pressure on you to make it happen. But if I surrender my life, I just get like, I give Jesus Christ, like Jesus Christ, you're gonna be Lord of my life. That means that everything I have, it belongs to Him. I mean, I just, I can just surrender. Like there's a level of peace 
and confidence that comes only as you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wanna encourage you to do that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or if you've wandered away, just come back to Him in that way. I love that you use the gospel to call it a, a series of yeses. Yes, Jesus, yes, God, for who you are. Yes, for who I am, that I've fallen short of a standard, that I'm, I'm a sinner both by nature and by action. Yes, to who Jesus Christ is as the perfect son of, of, of God who sacrificed himself for me. And then yes, to him coming into my life and making me who he wants me to be and living the life that he's called me to live. Yes, to all of that. There's a different group of people in the room that while you wanna to go to heaven when you die, you've asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sin. You are fully in charge of your own life and you like it that way. You prefer it that way. And as the word of God has spoken, even as Jimmy and Vern and others have preached the word here, you think, oh, that's, that's good, I'll consider that. I'll consider your opinion in the midst of all those opinions. But no, that's not what God's called us to do. He's actually called us to a place of surrendering ourselves to Him. And I'm calling you to that today as well. And I simply want to encourage you in this. I mean, sometimes it gets frustrating. Like there's these moments of surrender and you think, some of you may think, I've surrendered my life to the Lord Year, last year and then six months ago and, and then I need to do it again. I feel like I keep wandering away and I just wanna be, I want you to be in a place where there's no condemnation. Like if you need to surrender today for the very first time, please know that God does not condemn you in doing so. He's not disappointed when you say, yeah, I surrendered like this is the 10th time. Listen, if you do it every day, do it every single day. And I would simply remind you of this. In Joshua's day, Joshua needed to speak to a people that for 40 years was hand-fed and led by God with the pillow of fire and the cloud. I mean, they experienced God in a very real way, but yet as they're prepared to go into the promised land, even Joshua said, how long will you waver? Like, decide this very day whom you will serve. That's for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. So if they, in that situation, could still kind of stray away, man, God's not condemning us. And we need to renew that today. Jimmy? Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. Let's give God thanks for that message. You know, Jesus came from heaven to earth to die on a cross for our sins. And he rose again. So he paid for the sins and he rose again so that you can get in on that resurrection life that we call living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. You're either gonna say yes, like Pastor Kevin described to Jesus, or you're gonna say no. You're gonna say no, or you're gonna say no reservations. You're gonna say no to that sacrifice, or you're gonna say no retreat. And I would love today, and I believe the Lord would love today for you to do what some of us have sung, well, all of us at one point in our life made, I made the decision, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And if you do, I believe you'll write that final line in your own diary, your own journal, no regrets. I so far have no regrets in following Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? If you're here today and you're saying, man, I have not, I've come to churches, I've, I've hung out with other Christians, but I've not surrendered my life to Jesus. I've not decided in such a way that he's just one of many options amongst other options. And if that's you, if you're here and you're saying, I want 
to surrender my life to Jesus. No reservations, no retreat, so that I can live a life with no regrets. If that's you today, would you lift your hand high and let me pray for you? Awesome. Awesome, I see you. If you're here today and you're saying, uh, yeah, I know Jesus, but, but I've had a lot of retreating and a lot of, of, of reservations, and I want to end that today. If that's you, would you raise your hand high today? Okay. Whether you're in this room or whether you're online, I'm asking you to join us in praying and say, God, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I confess today that I'm laying aside the reservations, the retreating, and I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus that I can honor you with my life. And I confess, Jesus, you are Lord. And I'm asking you to fill me with the Holy Spirit, to live a life under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that I might be well-pleasing to you and fulfill the purpose for which you've created me. And in the end, that I can live my life with no regrets. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give God thanks for the people who say yes to Jesus.